Part 2 12 Jim was 12. He was difficult to live with, inconsistent, moody. His appetite was appalling, and he told me so many times to stop pestering him, I consulted Atticus. Reckon he's got a tapeworm? Atticus said no. Jim was growing. I must be patient with him and disturb him as little as possible. This change in Jim had come about in a matter of weeks. Mrs. DeBose was not cold in her grave. Jim had seemed grateful enough for my company when he went to read to her. Overnight, it seemed, Jim had acquired an alien set of values and was trying to impose them on me. Several times he went so far as to tell me what to do. After one altercation, when Jim hollered, It's time you started being a girl and acting right. I burst into tears and fled to Calpurnia. Don't you fret too much over Mr. Jim, she began. Mr. Jim? Yeah, he's just about Mr. Jim now. He ain't that old, I said. All he needs is somebody to beat him up, and I ain't big enough. Baby, said Calpurnia, I just can't help it if Mr. Jim's growing up. He's gonna want to be off to himself a lot now, doing whatever boys do, so you just come right on in the kitchen when you feel lonesome. We'll find lots of things to do in here. The beginning of that summer boded well. Jim could do as he pleased. Calpurnia would do until Dill came. She seemed glad to see me when I appeared in the kitchen, and by watching her I began to think there was some skill involved in being a girl. But summer came, and Dill was not there. I received a letter and a snapshot from him. The letter said he had a new father whose picture was enclosed, and he would have to stay in Meridian because they planned to build a fishing boat. His father was a lawyer like Atticus, only much younger. Dill's new father had a pleasant face, which made me glad Dill had captured him. But I was crushed. Dill concluded by saying he would love me forever and not to worry. He would come get me and marry me as soon as he got enough money together, so please write. The fact that I had a permanent fiancé was little compensation for his absence. I had never thought about it, but summer was dill by the fish pool smoking string, dill's eyes alive with complicated plans to make Boo Radley emerge. Summer was the swiftness with which dill would reach up and kiss me when Jim was not looking, the longings we sometimes felt each other feel. With him... Life was routine. Without him, life was unbearable. I stayed miserable for two days. As if that were not enough, the state legislature was called into emergency session and Atticus left us for two weeks. The governor was eager to scrape a few barnacles off the ship of state. There were sit-down strikes in Birmingham, Bread lines in the cities grew longer. People in the country grew poorer. But these were events remote from the world of Jim and me. We were surprised one morning to see a cartoon in the Montgomery Advertiser above the caption, Makeham's Finch. It showed Atticus barefooted and in short pants chained to a desk. He was diligently writing on a slate while some frivolous-looking girls yelled yoo-hoo at him. That's a compliment, explained Jim. He spends his time doing things that wouldn't get done if nobody did them. Huh? In addition to Jim's newly developed characteristics, he had acquired a maddening air of wisdom. Oh, Scout, it's like reorganizing the tax systems of the counties and things. That kind of thing's pretty dry to most men. How do you know? Oh, go on and leave me alone. I'm reading the paper. Jim got his wish. I departed for the kitchen. While she was shelling peas, Calpurnia suddenly said, What am I going to do about y'all's church this Sunday? 
Nothing, I reckon. Atticus left us collection. Calpurnia's eyes narrowed, and I could tell what was going through her mind. Cal, I said, you know we'll behave. We haven't done anything in church in years. Calpurnia evidently remembered a rainy Sunday when we were both fatherless and teacherless. Left to its own devices, the class tied Eunice Ann Simpson to a chair and placed her in the furnace room. We forgot her, trooped upstairs to church, and were listening quietly to the sermon when a dreadful banging issued from the radiator pipes, persisting until someone investigated and brought forth Eunice Ann, saying she didn't want to play Shadrach anymore. Jim Finch said she wouldn't get burnt if she had enough faith, but it was hot down there. Besides, Cal, this isn't the first time Atticus has left us, I protested. Yeah, but he makes certain your teacher's gonna be there. I didn't hear him say this time. Reckon he forgot it. Calpurnia scratched her head. Suddenly she smiled. How'd you and Mr. Jim like to come to church with me tomorrow? Really? How about it? grinned Calpurnia. If Calpurnia had ever bathed me roughly before, it was nothing compared to her supervision of that Saturday night's routine. She made me soap all over twice, drew fresh water in the tub for each rinse. She stuck my head in the basin and washed it with octagon soap and castile. She had trusted Jim for years, but that night she invaded his privacy and provoked an outburst. Can anybody take a bath in this house without the whole family looking? Next morning, she began earlier than usual to go over our clothes. When Calpurnia stayed overnight with us, she slept on a folding cot in the kitchen. That morning, it was covered with our Sunday habiliments. She had put so much starch in my dress, it came up like a tent when I sat down. She made me wear a petticoat, and she wrapped a pink sash tightly around my waist. She went over my patent leather shoes with a cold biscuit until she saw her face in them. It's like we're going to Mardi Gras, said Jim. What's all this for, Cal? I don't want anybody saying I don't look after my children, she muttered. Mr. Jim, you absolutely can't wear that tie with that suit. It's green. What's the matter with that? Suit's blue. Can't you tell? Hee <laughs> I howled. Jim's colorblind. His face flushed angrily, but Calpurnia said, Now you all quit that. You're gonna go to first purchase with smiles on your faces. First Purchase African M.E. Church was in the quarters outside the southern town limits, across the old sawmill tracks. It was an ancient paint-pilled frame building, the only church in Maycomb with a steeple and bell, called First Purchase because it was paid for from the first earnings of freed slaves. Negroes worshipped in it on Sundays, and white men gambled in it on weekdays. The churchyard was brick-hard clay, as was the cemetery beside it. If someone died during a dry spell, the body was covered with chunks of ice until rain softened the earth. A few graves in the cemetery were marked with crumbling tombstones. Newer ones were outlined with brightly colored glass and broken Coca-Cola bottles. Lightning rods guarding some graves denoted dead who rested uneasily. Stumps of burned-out candles stood at the heads of infant graves. It was a happy cemetery. The warm, bittersweet smell of clean Negro welcomed us as we entered the churchyard. Hearts of love hairdressing mingled with asafoetida, snuff, Hoyt's cologne, brown's mule, peppermint, and lilac talcum. When they saw Jim and me with Calpurnia, the men stepped back and took off their hats. The women crossed their arms at their waists, weekday gestures of respectful attention. They parted and made a small pathway to the church door for us. Calpurnia walked between Jim and me, 
responding to the greetings of her brightly clad neighbors. "'What you up to, Miss Cal?' said a voice behind us. Calpurnia's hands went to our shoulders, and we stopped and looked around. Standing in the path behind us was a tall Negro woman. Her weight was on one leg. She rested her left elbow in the curve of her hip, pointing at us with upturned palm. She was bullet-headed, with strange almond-shaped eyes, straight nose, and an Indian bow mouth. She seemed seven feet high. I felt Calpurnia's hand dig into my shoulder. What you want, Lula? She asked, in tones I had never heard her use. She spoke quietly, contemptuously. I wants to know why you bringin' white chillin' to nigger church. They's my company, said Calpurnia. Again, I thought her voice strange. She was talking like the rest of them. Yeah, and I reckon you's company at the Finch House during the week. A murmur ran through the crowd. Don't you fret, Calpurnia whispered to me, but the roses on her hat trembled indignantly. When Lula came up the pathway toward us, Calpurnia said, Stop right there, nigger. Lula stopped, but she said, You ain't got no business bringing white chillin' here. They got their church, we got iron. It is our church, ain't it, Miss Cal? Calpurnia said, It's the same God, ain't it? Jim said, Let's go home, Cal. They don't want us here. I agreed. They did not want us here. I sensed rather than saw that we were being advanced upon. They seemed to be drawing closer to us, but when I looked up at Calpurnia, there was amusement in her eyes. When I looked down the pathway again, Lula was gone. In her place was a solid mass of colored people. One of them stepped from the crowd. It was Zebo, the garbage collector. Mr. Jim? He said, we're mighty glad to have you all here. Don't pay no attention to Lula. She's contentious because Reverend Sykes threatened to church her. She's a troublemaker from way back, got fancy ideas and haughty ways. We're mighty glad to have you all. With that, Calpurnia led us to the church door where we were greeted by Reverend Sykes, who led us to the front pew. First purchase was unsealed and unpainted within. Along its walls, unlighted kerosene lamps hung on brass brackets. Pine benches served as pews. Behind the rough oak pulpit, a faded pink silk banner proclaimed God is love. The church's only decoration except a rotogravure print of Hunt's The Light of the World. There was no sign of piano, organ, hymn books, church programs. The familiar ecclesiastical impedimenta we saw every Sunday. It was dim inside, with a damp coolness slowly dispelled by the gathering congregation. At each seat was a cheap cardboard fan bearing a garish Garden of Gethsemane, courtesy Tyndall's Hardware Company. You name it, we sell it. Calpurnia motioned Jim and me to the end of the row and placed herself between us. She fished in her purse, drew out her handkerchief, and untied the hard wad of change in its corner. She gave a dime to me and a dime to Jim. We've got ours, he whispered. You keep it, Calpurnia said. You're my company. Jim's face showed brief indecision on the ethics of withholding his own dime, but his innate courtesy won, and he shifted his dime to his pocket. I did likewise, with no qualms. Cal, I whispered, where are the hymn books? We don't have any, she said. Well, how... Shh, she said. Reverend Sykes was standing behind the pulpit, staring the congregation to silence. He was a short, stocky man in a black suit, black tie, white shirt, 
and a gold watch chain that glinted in the light from the frosted windows. He said, Brethren and sisters, we are particularly glad to have company with us this morning. Mr. and Miss Finch, you all know their father. Before I begin, I will read some announcements. Reverend Sykes shuffled some papers, chose one, and held it at arm's length. The Missionary Society meets in the home of Sister Annette Reeves next Tuesday. Bring your sewing. He read from another paper. You all know of Brother Tom Robinson's trouble. He has been a faithful member of First Purchase since he was a boy. The collection taken up today and for the next three Sundays will go to Helen, his wife, to help her out at home. I punched Jim. That's the Tom Atticus, the shh. I turned to Calpurnia, but was hushed before I opened my mouth. Subdued, I fixed my attention upon Reverend Sykes, who seemed to be waiting for me to settle down. Will the music superintendent lead us in the first hymn? he said. Zebo rose from his pew and walked down the center aisle, stopping in front of us and facing the congregation. He was carrying a battered hymn book. He opened it and said, We'll sing number 273. This was too much for me. How are you going to sing it if there ain't any hymn books? Calpurnia smiled. Hush, baby, she whispered. You'll see in a minute. Zebo cleared his throat and read in a voice like the rumble of distant artillery. There's a land beyond the river. Miraculously on pitch, a hundred voices sang out Zebo's words. The last syllable, held to a husky hum, was followed by Zebo saying, That we call the sweet forever. Music again swelled around us. The last note lingered, and Zebo met it with the next line, and we only reached that shore by face decree. The congregation hesitated. Zebo repeated the line carefully, and it was sung. At the chorus, Zebo closed the book, a signal for the congregation to proceed without his help. On the dying notes of Jubilee, Zebo said, in that far-off sweet forever, just beyond the shining river. Line for line, voices followed in simple harmony until the hymn ended in a melancholy murmur. I looked at Jim, who was looking at Zebo from the corners of his eyes. I didn't believe it either, but we had both heard it. Reverend Sykes then called on the Lord to bless the sick and the suffering, a procedure no different from our church practice, except Reverend Sykes directed the deity's attention to several specific cases. His sermon was a forthright denunciation of sin, an austere declaration of the motto on the wall behind him. He warned his flock against the evils of heady brews, gambling, and strange women. Bootleggers caused enough trouble in the quarters, but women were worse. Again, as I had often met it in my own church, I was confronted with the impurity of women doctrine that seemed to preoccupy all clergymen. Jim and I had heard the same sermon Sunday after Sunday, with only one exception. Reverend Sykes used his pulpit more freely to express his views on individual lapses from grace. Jim Hardy had been absent from church for five Sundays, and he wasn't sick. Constance Jackson had better watch her ways. She was in grave danger for quarreling with her neighbors. She had erected the only spite fence in the history of the quarters. Reverend Sykes closed his sermon. He stood beside a table in front of the pulpit and requested the morning offering, a proceeding that was strange to Jim and me. One by one, the congregation came forward and dropped nickels and dimes into a black enameled coffee can. 
Jim and I followed suit and received a soft thank you, thank you, as our dimes clinked. To our amazement, Reverend Sykes emptied the can onto the table and raked the coins into his hand. He straightened up and said, This is not enough. We must have ten dollars. The congregation stirred. You all know what it's for. Helen can't leave those children to work while Tom's in jail. If everybody gives one more dime, we'll have it. Reverend Sykes waved his hand and called someone in the back of the church. Alec, shut the doors. Nobody leaves here till we have ten dollars. Calpurnia scratched in her handbag and brought forth a battered leather coin purse. Now, Cal, Jim whispered when she handed him a shiny quarter, we can put ours in. Give me your dime, Scout. The church was becoming stuffy, and it occurred to me that Reverend Sykes intended to sweat the amount due out of his flock. Fans crackled, feet shuffled, tobacco chewers were in agony. Reverend Sykes startled me by saying sternly, Carlo Richardson, I haven't seen you up this aisle yet. A thin man in khaki pants came up the aisle and deposited a coin. The congregation murmured approval. Reverend Sykes then said, I want all of you with no children to make a sacrifice and give one more dime apiece. Then we'll have it. Slowly, painfully, the ten dollars was collected. The door was opened, and the gust of warm air revived us. Zebo lined on Jordan's stormy banks, and church was over. I wanted to stay and explore, but Calpurnia propelled me up the aisle ahead of her. At the church door, while she paused to talk with Zebo and his family, Jim and I chatted with Reverend Sykes. I was bursting with questions, but decided I would wait and let Calpurnia answer them. We were specially glad to have you all here, said Reverend Sykes. This church has no better friend than your daddy. My curiosity burst. Why were you all taking up collection for Tom Robinson's wife? Didn't you hear why? asked Reverend Sykes. Helen's got three little uns and she can't go out to work. Why can't she take them with her, Reverend? I asked. It was customary for field Negroes with tiny children to deposit them in whatever shade there was while their parents worked. Usually the baby sat in the shade between two rows of cotton. Those unable to sit were strapped papoose-style on their mother's backs or resided in extra cotton bags. Reverend Sykes hesitated. To tell you the truth, Miss Jean Louise, Helen's finding it hard to get work these days. When it's picking time, I think Mr. Link Dees will take her. Why not, Reverend? Before he could answer, I felt Calpurnia's hand on my shoulder. At its pressure, I said, We thank you for letting us come. Jim echoed me, and we made our way homeward. Cal, I know Tom Robinson's in jail, and he's done something awful, but why won't folks hire Helen? I asked. Calpurnia, in her navy voile dress and tub of a hat, walked between Jim and me. It's because of what folks say Tom's done, she said. Folks aren't anxious to, to have anything to do with any of his family. Just what did he do, Cal? Calpurnia sighed. Oh, Mr. Bob Ewell accused him of raping his girl and had him arrested and put in jail. Mr. Ewell? My memory stirred. Does he have anything to do with those Ewells that come every first day of school and then go home? Why, Atticus said they were absolute trash. I never heard Atticus talk about folks the way he talked about the Yules. He said, yeah, those are the ones. Well, if everybody in Maycomb knows what kind of folks the Yules are, they'd be glad to hire Helen. What's rape, Cal? 
It's something you'll have to ask Mr. Finch about, she said. He can explain it better than I can. You all hungry? The Reverend took a long time unwinding this morning. He's not usually so tedious. He's just like our preacher, said Jim. But why do you all sing hymns that way? Lining, she asked. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's called lining. They've done it that way as long as I can remember. Jim said it looked like they could save the collection money for a year and get some hymn books. Calpurnia laughed. Wouldn't do any good, she said. They can't read. Can't read? I asked. All those folks? That's right, Calpurnia nodded. Can't but about four folks in first purchase read. I'm one of them. Where'd you go to school, Cal? asked Jim. Nowhere. Let's see now. Who taught me my letters? It was Miss Maudie Atkinson's aunt, old Miss Buford. Are you that old? I'm older than Mr. Finch, even, Calpurnia grinned. Not sure how much, though. We started remembering one time, trying to figure out how old I was. I can remember back just a few years more than he can, so I'm not much older, when you take off the fact that men can't remember as well as women. What's your birthday, Cal? I just have it on Christmas. It's easier to remember that way. I don't have a real birthday. But Cal, Jim protested, you don't look even near as old as Atticus. Colored folks don't show their ages so fast, she said. Maybe because they can't read. Cal, did you teach Zebo? Yeah, Mr. Jim. There wasn't a school even when he was a boy. I made him learn, though. Zebo was Calpurnia's eldest son. If I had ever thought about it, I would have known that Calpurnia was of mature years. Zebo had half-grown children, but then I had never thought about it. Did you teach him out of a primer, like us? I asked. No, I made him get a page of the Bible every day, and there was a book Miss Buford taught me out of. Bet you don't know where I got it, she said. We didn't know. Calpurnia said, Your granddaddy Finch gave it to me. Were you from the landing? Jim asked. You never told us that. I certainly am, Mr. Jim. Grew up down there between the Buford Place and the Landing. I spent all my days working for the Finches or the Bufords, and I moved to make them when your daddy and your mama married. What was the book, Cal? I asked. Blackstone's Commentaries. Jim was thunderstruck. You mean you taught Zebo out of that? Why, yes, sir, Mr. Jim. Calpurnia timidly put her fingers to her mouth. They were the only books I had. Your granddaddy said Mr. Blackstone wrote fine English. That's why you don't talk like the rest of them, said Jim. The rest of who? Rest of the colored folks. Cal, but you talk like they did in church that Calpurnia led a modest double life never dawned on me. The idea that she had a separate existence outside our household was a novel one, to say nothing of her having command of two languages. Cal, I asked, why do you talk nigger talk to the, to your folks when you know it's not right? Well, in the first place, I'm black. That doesn't mean you have to talk that way when you know better, said Jim. Calpurnia tilted her hat and scratched her head, then pressed her hat down carefully over her ears. It's right hard to say, she said. Suppose you and Scout talked colored folks talk at home. It'd be out of place, wouldn't it? Now what if I talked white folks talk at church and with my neighbors? They'd think I was putting on airs to beat Moses. But, Cal, you know better, I said. It's not necessary to tell all you know. It's not ladylike in the second place. 
Folks don't like to have somebody around knowing more than they do. It aggravates them. You're not going to change any of them by talking right. They've got to want to learn themselves. And when they don't want to learn, there's nothing you can do but keep your mouth shut or talk their language. Cal, can I come to see you sometimes? She looked down at me. See me, honey? You see me every day. Out to your house, I said. Sometimes after work, Atticus can get me. Anytime you want to, she said. We'd be glad to have you. We were on the sidewalk by the Radley place. Look on the porch yonder, Jim said. I looked over to the Radley place, expecting to see its phantom occupant sunning himself in the swing. The swing was empty. I mean our porch, said Jim. I looked down the street. An armored, upright, uncompromising Aunt Alexandra was sitting in a rocking chair exactly as if she had sat there every day of her life. Thirteen. Put my bag in the front bedroom, Calpurnia, was the first thing Aunt Alexandra said. Jean Louise, stop scratching your head, was the second thing she said. Calpurnia picked up Auntie's heavy suitcase and opened the door. I'll take it, said Jim, and took it. I heard the suitcase hit the bedroom floor with a thump. The sound had a dull permanence about it. Have you come for a visit, Auntie? I asked. Aunt Alexander's visits from the landing were rare, and she traveled in state. She owned a bright green square Buick and a black chauffeur. Both kept in an unhealthy state of tidiness, but today they were nowhere to be seen. Didn't your father tell you? She asked. Jim and I shook our heads. Probably he forgot. He's not in yet, is he? No, he doesn't usually get back till late afternoon, said Jim. Well, your father and I decided it was time I came to stay with you for a while. For a while in Maycomb meant anything from three days to thirty years. Jim and I exchanged glances. Jim's growing up now, and you are too, she said to me. We decided that it would be best for you to have some feminine influence. It won't be many years, Jean Louise, before you become interested in clothes and boys. I could have made several answers to this. Cal's a girl. It would be many years before I would be interested in boys. I would never be interested in clothes. But I kept quiet. What about Uncle Jimmy? asked Jim. Is he coming too? Oh, no, he's staying at the landing. He'll keep the place going. The moment I said, won't you miss him? I realized that this was not a tactful question. Uncle Jimmy present or Uncle Jimmy absent made not much difference. He never said anything. Aunt Alexandra ignored my question. I could think of nothing else to say to her. In fact, I could never think of anything to say to her, and I sat thinking of past painful conversations between us. How are you, Jean Louise? Fine. Thank you, ma'am. How are you? Very well, thank you. What have you been doing with yourself? Nothing. Don't you do anything? No. Certainly you have friends. Yes, am Well, what do you all do? Nothing. It was plain that Auntie thought me dull in the extreme because I once heard her tell Atticus that I was sluggish. There was a story behind all this, but I had no desire to extract it from her then. Today was Sunday, and Aunt Alexandra was positively irritable on the Lord's Day. I guess it was her Sunday corset. She was not fat but solid, and she chose protective garments that drew up her bosom to giddy heights, pinched in her waist, flared out her rear, and managed to suggest that Aunt Alexandra's 
was once an hourglass figure. From any angle, it was formidable. The remainder of the afternoon went by in the gentle gloom that descends when relatives appear, but was dispelled when we heard a car turn in the driveway. It was Atticus, home from Montgomery. Jim, forgetting his dignity, ran with me to meet him. Jim seized his briefcase and bag. I jumped into his arms, felt his vague, dry kiss, and said, "'Did you bring me a book? Do you know Auntie's here?' Atticus answered both questions in the affirmative. How'd you like for her to come live with us? I said I would like it very much, which was a lie, but one must lie under certain circumstances and at all times when one can't do anything about them. We felt it was time you children needed. Well, it's like this, Scout, Atticus said. Your aunt's doing me a favor as well as you all. I can't stay here all day with you, and the summer's going to be a hot one. Yes, sir, I said, not understanding a word he said. I had an idea, however, that Aunt Alexandra's appearance on the scene was not so much Atticus's doing as hers. Auntie had a way of declaring what is best for the family, and I suppose her coming to live with us was in that category. Makem welcomed her. Miss Maudie Atkinson baked a lane cake so loaded with shinny it made me tight. Miss Stephanie Crawford had long visits with Aunt Alexandra, consisting mostly of Miss Stephanie shaking her head and saying, mm-mm-mm. Miss Rachel next door had Auntie over for coffee in the afternoons, and Mr. Nathan Radley went so far as to come up in the front yard and say he was glad to see her. When she settled in with us and life resumed its daily pace, Aunt Alexandra seemed as if she had always lived with us. Her missionary society refreshments added to her reputation as a hostess. She did not permit Calpurnia to make the delicacies required to sustain the society through long reports on rice Christians. She joined and became secretary of the Makem Amanuensis Club. To all parties present and participating in the life of the county, Aunt Alexandra was one of the last of her kind. She had riverboat, boarding school manners. Let any moral come along, and she would uphold it. She was born in the objective case. She was an incurable gossip. When Aunt Alexandra went to school... Self-doubt could not be found in any textbook, so she knew not its meaning. She was never bored, and given the slightest chance, she would exercise her royal prerogative. She would arrange, advise, caution, and warn. She never let a chance escape her to point out the shortcomings of other tribal groups to the greater glory of her own, a habit that amused Jim rather than annoyed him. Auntie better watch how she talks, scratch most folks and make them, and they're kin to us. Aunt Alexandra, in underlining the moral of young Sam Merriweather's suicide, said it was caused by a morbid streak in the family. Let a 16-year-old girl giggle in the choir, and Auntie would say, it just goes to show you all the Penfield women are flighty. Everybody in Makem, it seemed, had a streak, a drinking streak, a gambling streak, a mean streak, a funny streak. Once, when Auntie assured us that Miss Stephanie Crawford's tendency to mind other people's business was hereditary, Attica said, Sister, when you stop to think about it, our generation's practically the first in the Finch family not to marry its cousins. Would you say the Finches have an incestuous streak? Auntie said, no, that's where we got our small hands and feet. I never understood her preoccupation with heredity. Somewhere, I had received the impression that fine folks were people who did the best they could with the sense they had, but Aunt Alexandra was of the opinion 
obliquely expressed that the longer a family had been squatting on one patch of land, the finer it was. That makes the Yules fine folks, then, said Jim. The tribe of which Burris Ewell and his brethren consisted had lived on the same plot of earth behind the Maycomb dump and had thrived on county welfare money for three generations. Aunt Alexandra's theory had something behind it, though. Maycomb was an ancient town. It was twenty miles east of Finch's Landing, awkwardly inland for such an old town, but Maycomb would have been closer to the river had it not been for the nimble-wittedness of one sinkfield, who in the dawn of history operated an inn where two pig trails met, the only tavern in the territory. Sinkfield, no patriot, served and supplied ammunition to Indians and settlers alike, neither knowing or caring whether he was a part of the Alabama Territory or the Creek Nation so long as business was good. Business was excellent when Governor William Wyatt Bibb, with a view to promoting the newly created county's domestic tranquility, dispatched a team of surveyors to locate its exact center and there establish its seat of government. The surveyors, Sinkfield's guests, told their host that he was in the territorial confines of Maycomb County and showed him the probable spot where the county seat would be built had not Sinkfield made a bold stroke to preserve his holdings, Maycomb would have sat in the middle of Winston's Swamp, a place totally devoid of interest. Instead, Maycomb grew and sprawled out from its hub, Sinkfield's Tavern, because Sinkfield reduced his guests to myopic drunkenness one evening, induced them to bring forward their maps and charts, lop off a little here, add a bit there, and adjust the center of the county to meet his requirements. He sent them packing next day armed with their charts and five quarts of shinny in their saddlebags, two apiece and one for the governor. Because its primary reason for existence was government, Maycomb was spared the grubbiness that distinguished most Alabama towns its size. In the beginning, its buildings were solid, its courthouse proud, its streets graciously wide. Macon's proportion of professional people ran high. One went there to have his teeth pulled, his wagon fixed, his heart listened to, his money deposited, his soul saved, his mules vetted. But the ultimate wisdom of Sinkfield's maneuver is open to question. He placed the young town too far away from the only kind of public transportation in those days, riverboat, and it took a man from the north end of the county two days to travel to Maycomb for store-bought goods. As a result, the town remained the same size for a hundred years, an island in a patchwork sea of cotton fields and timberland. Although Maycomb was ignored during the war between the states, Reconstruction rule and economic ruin forced the town to grow. It grew inward. New people so rarely settled there, the same families married the same families until the members of the community looked faintly alike. Occasionally, someone would return from Montgomery or Mobile with an outsider, but the result caused only a ripple in the quiet stream of family resemblance. Things were more or less the same during my early years. There was indeed a caste system in Maycomb, but to my mind it worked this way. The old citizens, the present generation of people who had lived side by side for years and years, were utterly predictable to one another. They took for granted attitudes, character shadings, even gestures as having been repeated in each generation and refined by time. Thus the dicta, no Crawford minds his own business, every third Merriweather is morbid, the truth is not in the Delafields, all the Bufords walk like that, were simply guides to daily living. Never take a check from a Delafield without a discreet call to the bank. Miss Maudie Atkinson's shoulder stoops because she was a Buford. 
If Mrs. Grace Merriweather sips gin out of Lydia E. Pinkham bottles, it's nothing unusual. Her mother did the same. Aunt Alexandra fitted into the world of Maycomb like a hand into a glove, but never into the world of Jim and me. I so often wondered how she could be Atticus's and Uncle Jack's sister that I revived half-remembered tales of changelings and mandrake roots that Jim had spun long ago. These were abstract speculations for the first month of her stay, as she had little to say to Jim and me, and we saw her only at meal times and at night before we went to bed. It was summer, and we were outdoors. Of course, some afternoons when I would run inside for a drink of water, I would find the living room overrun with make'em ladies, sipping, whispering, fanning, and I would be called, Jean Louise, come speak to these ladies. When I appeared in the doorway, Auntie would look as if she regretted her request. I was usually mud-splashed or covered with sand. Speak to your cousin Lily she said one afternoon when she had trapped me in the hall. Who? I said. Your cousin Lily Brooke, said Aunt Alexandra. She our cousin? I didn't know that. Aunt Alexandra managed to smile in a way that conveyed a gentle apology to cousin Lily and firm disapproval of me. When cousin Lily Brooke left, I knew I was in for it. It was a sad thing that my father had neglected to tell me about the Finch family or to install any pride into his children. She summoned Jim, who sat warily on the sofa beside me. She left the room and returned with a purple-covered book on which Meditations of Joshua S. St. Clair was stamped in gold. "'Your cousin wrote this,' said Aunt Alexandra. "'He was a beautiful character.' Jim examined the small volume. Is this the cousin Joshua who was locked up for so long? Aunt Alexandra said, How did you know that? Why, Atticus said he went round the bend at the university, said he tried to shoot the president, said cousin Joshua said he wasn't anything but a sewer inspector and tried to shoot him with an old flintlock pistol, only it just blew up in his hand. Attica said it cost the family $500 to get him out of that one. Aunt Alexandra was standing stiff as a stork. That's all, she said. We'll see about this. Before bedtime, I was in Jim's room trying to borrow a book when Atticus knocked and entered. He sat on the side of Jim's bed, looked at us soberly. Then he grinned. Ahem, <clears throat> he said. He was beginning to preface some things he said with a throaty noise, and I thought he must at last be getting old. But he looked the same. I don't exactly know how to say this, he began. Well, just say it, said Jim. Have we done something? Our father was actually fidgeting. No, I just want to explain to you that your aunt Alexandra asked me, Son, you know you're a finch, don't you? That's what I've been told. Jim looked out of the corners of his eyes. His voice rose uncontrollably. Atticus, what's the matter? Atticus crossed his knees and folded his arms. I'm trying to tell you the facts of life. Jim's disgust deepened. I know all that stuff, he said. Atticus suddenly grew serious. In his lawyer's voice, without a shade of inflection, he said, Your aunt has asked me to try and impress upon you and Jean Louise that you are not from run-of-the-mill people, that you are the product of several generations' gentle breeding. Atticus paused watching me locate an elusive red bug on my leg. Gentle breeding, he continued, when I had found and scratched it, and that you should try to live up to your name. Atticus persevered in spite of us. She asked me to tell you you must try to behave like the little lady and gentleman that you are. 
She wants to talk to you about the family and what it's meant to make them county through the years. So you'll have some idea of who you are, and so you might be moved to behave accordingly, he concluded at a gallop. Stunned, Jim and I looked at each other, then at Atticus, whose collar seemed to worry him. We did not speak to him. Presently, I picked up a comb from Jim's dresser and ran its teeth along the edge. Stop that noise, Atticus said. His curtness stung me. The comb was midway in its journey, and I banged it down. For no reason, I felt myself beginning to cry, but I could not stop. This was not my father. My father never thought these thoughts. My father never spoke so. Aunt Alexandra had put him up to this somehow. Through my tears, I saw Jim standing in a similar pool of isolation, his head cocked to one side. There was nowhere to go, but I turned to go and met Atticus's vest front. I buried my head in it and listened to the small, internal noises that went on behind the light blue cloth, his watch ticking, the faint crackle of his starched shirt, the soft sound of his breathing. Your stomach's growling, I said. I know it, he said. You better take some soda. I will, he said. Atticus, is all this behaving and stuff going to make things different? I mean, are you... I felt his hand on the back of my head. Don't you worry about anything, he said. It's not time to worry. When I heard that, I knew he had come back to us. The blood in my legs began to flow again, and I raised my head. You really want us to do all that? I can't remember everything Finchers are supposed to do. I don't want you to remember it. Forget it. He went to the door and out of the room, shutting the door behind him. He nearly slammed it, but caught himself at the last minute and closed it softly. As Jim and I stared, the door opened again, and Atticus peered around. His eyebrows were raised. His glasses had slipped. Get more like Cousin Joshua every day, don't I? Do you think I'll end up costing the family $500? I know now what he was trying to do, but Atticus was only a man. It takes a woman to do that kind of work.